Let's record. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So, great. Let's talk. Let's talk. Yes. Welcome to episode three of the Polis Podcast. I'm Ben, and... I'm John. Nice. Yeah, so today we're going to talk a little bit about modern cities, the transition from medieval or pre-modern cities into modern cities and like what that entailed, why it happened, when it happened. Right. And then where's the discussion of modern cities going? Where is it going? And yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. All of that. What is the future of cities (laughs) with that? Yeah, sure. Maybe not necessarily the future of cities, but I think, you know, there's a transition from pre-modern to modern, and then there's where are we at this point and what is the next transition as cities have made transitions from the past into now. That's kind of what I was thinking. Sure. Great. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Awesome, awesome. (laughs) So to you, when does the kind of modern era start? Because obviously there's a bit of a range in terms of what people think. Right. Like for the transitions of cities, like when did that happen? Right. I don't know if there's necessarily a date that you can place on it, except to say that I think the real distinction between a pre-modern and a modern city was the invention and implementation of sewers and sanitation infrastructure Mm. you know necessary things that we don't even think about now that allowed people to live in close proximity to one another without dying of disease that's kind of like the big issue because yeah you know in cities people were were dying like crazy because of disease and disease came from um, domestication of animals and also just close proximity to other humans which allowed disease yeah at first it was the domestication of animals and then eventually once animals moved out of like close habitation to humans it became living closely to other humans right. cause disease. Although I, I think that transition is a little bit later on than most people think because r- the real end of animals in city centers came with the mass production of the car because up to that point it was, you know, the buggy with horses mm. um, moving people around. And there was, st- you know, there were still diseases that came from horses and like sure, cleanliness yeah. issues. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, in the beginning, it was every sort of animal in the city center being domesticated, moving around, transferred from market to butcher or whatever. Mm. But animals didn't leave the city for a long time, not until we really didn't need them anymore for transportation purposes. Yeah. My point is just that by the time you get to the 16th, 1700s, the number of horses around compared to the number of humans around starts <laughs> to skew in one direction. Sure. And the issue is the larger group. Sure, sure. But you're absolutely right. Sanitation is the key to creating a modern and kind of sustainable city. One of the facts that I find absolutely fascinating that I read a few years ago was that pretty much all cities before like the 1800s, before the 19th century, even after sewers and a lot of sanitation, like basic sewers and sanitation were implemented, constantly had more people dying than being born. Mm. So that means if no people came to the city, it would constantly have a declining population. (laughs) And the only way that cities sustain themselves is by having a constant influx of people from the countryside. So it's like people would come in, they would get chewed up, get diseases, whatever, and then die. And that is just a remarkable thing to think about that that was kind of the engine for at least all European societies at that point. And once you get basic sanitation, you get, you know, not having open sewage in the streets and you don't have all of the sewage being pumped right into the river that everyone gets their water from. Once that change happens, you do start to see this decline in disease. You start to see rapid increases in life expectancy. And you see that cities ballooned out in size at that point because suddenly everyone wasn't dying a few years after they moved in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Life expectancy of somebody moving to a city suddenly ballooned up and Mm -hmm. 
it, it changed everything in terms of people's calculus about whether or not to move to cities yeah. and made it such a better proposition for people to move in. Right. And it's interesting because I think most people, when they think about kind of a modern city, I think most people would focus on the transition to use of cars. Like that's, I think, what a lot of people think about. Now, do you think that that transition, the use of cars, is as big as the sewers and the sanitation? Um, like it did certainly reform cities in a way that is pretty profound. Yeah, it's as big. The implementation of cars as the primary mode of transport in a city mm. definitely changed the cities so much and created what we have today in terms of layout of the cities. I mean, that's really what it changed. I mean, it cha- well, it changed way, way more True. than that because the layout of the city sort of influences the the culture of a city and, and the culture of a the people. societal structures changed right with right it, yeah. right 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 and as well as well as like architecture and home needs and how homes are laid out and what people need out of life like you know the keeping up with the joneses mm. thing i guess it was a yeah. thing before the suburbs but it might have been hyper influenced it was by harder the, to compare your life to somebody else's life before there were all of the obvious things to compare like yeah. your lawn and your car and your yeah. house and all of that yeah you just kind of just had a door in an apartment building yeah right now i i mean i i grant you that it is that is a huge change and it completely restructured everything but uh-huh. i still think the sanitation one is much much larger and right. one of the things that i look at with this is the fact that all cities today yeah have sanitation they all have sewage treatment they all have indoor plumbing that is a necessity for anyone to live in a city and not all cities have changed their structures around cars like some have but you can still have have. a modern high functioning city i don't think i mean most to varying degrees (laughs) well sure but the only ones that that really i mean the only places where you see that cars aren't necessarily the most dominant mode of transport is in the old centers of cities that were around before cars if you move to the outside parts of cities even like the oldest cities in the world like let's take the suburbs of rome or the suburbs of cairo right yeah you're gonna find american style suburbs which is to say suburbs that revolve around the car i don't disagree with that but that is an addition to the city rather than a change of the core of the city do you know what i mean i i disagree with that I, I think that I think that changes the core of the city. I do. Well, like, it will influence it, obviously, because you now have this other kind of city next door that's a part yeah. of the whole functioning of the place. Yeah. But what I'm saying is every city was rebuilt around electricity. Every city was rebuilt around indoor plumbing and around sanitation and sewer systems. People didn't tear down buildings and rebuild everything in a, in a way to allow cars to get everywhere in the oh. cor- center of cities and oh. expand all of their streets. Yes, they, in some places, no, they yes, did. Yes, they did. Dude, 100%. Robert Moses in New York knocked yes. down so much of the city in order to just put freeways through. And Absolutely. His... In the U.S., this right. is undeniable. But okay. this is not... A, like, the U.S. is not the universal end-all and be-all of every place in the world. No, like, no, you're right. You're right. Places that pre-existed the car did not uniformly change to adapt to make the car the primary thing uh... in the way that they did for electricity and sewage i guess what i'm saying is that technology is not as core to what a modern city is Mm. in terms of what is needed to have a modern high functioning city as some of these other technologies but you're right the transition was ubiquitous and maybe i'm making a a a losing argument here (laughs) i mean we can you know we can we can debate this for for a long time but i think i think your your point is still is still valid in that in that Hmm. the the transition like well before the car 
was sort of yeah. the, the creation of, of like modern sanitation infrastructure. And I think that yeah. started, you know, as, as sort of like to cite an example, or at least the one that is that is cited all the time is the cholera outbreak in London in like the late 1800s or the mid 1800s. Mid-1800s um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And where this guy, John Snow, who did know something, uh, ended up <laughs> ended up creating a, you know, a map where he mapped like, like everywhere where cholera broke out and he noticed that the places where cholera was so prevalent were close to water like watering spots around the city and so he realized that the issue actually came from the water and if they cleaned up the water then then they would have better health and that's what they did and led to a reduced amount of cholera in the city which which is revolutionary groundbreaking yeah exactly and and following that kind of discovery you you do see the rapid transition that was in the 1850s i believe Mm -hmm. and you see like if you look at Chicago and New York, they started construction on their modern sewer systems in the 1850s. London started in 1858. Paris and some cities in Germany started in the 1860s. Once that was established, very rapidly people adapted to it because obviously these diseases had hampered these cities for centuries Mm -hmm. and wiping them out was a big priority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this was also, I think, partially in response to the new industrial wealth of a lot of these places. Like when you, when you think about the, I mean, certainly the discovery was essential, but the government of these cities having the financial capacity to build this sort of infrastructure, mm-hmm. I don't think would have existed a century before that. And the incredible growth in terms of income and wealth deriving from the industrial revolution allowed these cities and these governments to tax people in such a way that they could build this sort of infrastructure. And it built such an incentive for all of the people moving to these cities to actually live in them because you have to live near the factories and the factories suddenly produce all this wealth and now you need the sanitation in order to be able right. to sustain the people in these areas. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, because when you think about it, like sewers, like you look at Paris, the first sewers and the first plumbing was put in in the 1700s, right? a century before this. But that wasn't widespread because you could not finance that for the whole city. That just was was not possible. There was there was no industrial basis in order to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you needed this kind of industrial might. And there was also a much greater benefit for the government because the government wanted to support industry because industry brought them power and brought them additional wealth and, they, and all that. Yeah. I'd also hope that they want to, you know, protect their citizens. Sure, but... <laughs> but you did need a way to finance it. I get it. I get it. Well, yeah, like you can't build things without money. That is a necessary thing. Right, right, right. Right. I mean, yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, I com- what? No, no, no. I, I, completely, I completely get it. I was just listening to what you were saying and I was like, yeah, it, it's all that. And it's also that the government probably also wanted to protect its citizens from disease or if they found some sort of easy way to protect its citizens from disease, which is to say build sanitation. But I mean, if you think about it, like I don't think anyone thought having sewage thrown out on the streets was like great fun. You know what I mean? Like no. People no. would talk about the river, like in London, smelling like death and stuff like that. Like that's not like, oh yay, this is something we love to have in the middle of our city. Right. It was just that this was accepted because they didn't see that there was any way around it. Right. Right. When you start to get to certain levels of wealth, you start to have this be possible. I mean, that's why you start to see it in the industrial cities first. That's why you start to see it in places like Hamburg and London mm-hmm. and Manchester and in, in the north of England and stuff. You don't see it in you know like rural Germany or in the middle of Spain because those places didn't industrialize as quickly or as early. Mm-hmm. And, and so you just you just don't see that. Yeah. You know, another thing that I find fascinating about this modernization is 
one, how recent it is, because thinking about it only being in the 1850s, like that's the Civil War. And I know that's a long time ago, but like that does seem so recent to have not had right. sewers and indoor plumbing be common. Like that is so long after the end of what I would think of as like the monarchic age and all of that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's weird to think about how recent that is. And then how quickly after like the 1860s, when these sewers started being built, cities just completely took off because you look at electrification happening around the turn of the century. You look at the invention of the car and adaptation to the car and things like that. The implementation of skyscrapers right around the turn of the century, like that time Mm -hmm. from like the 1860s through Mm -hmm. the 1920s, it it had a more profound shift on society and the way people in society lived than I think probably had ever happened in the history of mankind before that. Mm -hmm. And I think more than has happened since then. Like certainly we adapted to the cars. Now we have freeways and things like that. And Mm -hmm super giants, tall skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. But I don't think things have changed in as fundamental a way since the 1920s, 1930s, as they did between the 1860s and the 1920s. You know, I, I'd probably agree with that statement. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think I want to slightly qualify it, though, in saying that like the invention okay. of the skyscraper is only a result of the invention of the elevator. That was the real difference maker. Sure, yeah. Cause, like, we Which can... has to do with electricity and has, I mean... Right. Like all of these things layer in... And tie together, yeah. Right. That was something else I was going to bring up, you know, sort of shifting away closer to now, closer to present day. Sure. Further up the stack. Yeah. Right. In terms of what is a more modern city. And, you know, after sanitation, it went to electrification and then yeah. and then the elevator, because the elevator was really the invention that allowed us to build up. And by allowing us to build up, we were able to pack more people into a single space than ever before. You know, true. We've both lived in those old six-story apartments in Europe and they're not fun to go up every single day you get used to it but like I wouldn't want to do much more than six stories well and there are lots of things that you can't really do on the higher floors without elevators to stock things or to move factory equipment up right you can't move pianos up to the fifth floor very easily (laughs) right exactly that's true you know around the same time as the elevator was probably the car and I think that was as we were saying earlier another huge shift in the creation and design of cities and how they were able to accommodate more and more people. I mean, I think like at the end of the day, all of these inventions and breakthroughs, their end goal, whether it's stated or not, is to allow more people to live on a smaller area of land, except for the car. But all yeah, of them the allowed... Didn't do that. It didn't It didn't accept it allowed more people to live... The train didn't either. Well, well, sorry. What I mean by that is like, not so much that people live close to one another i mean especially with the car but even though you can have somebody living 20 30 miles out of the city center you know with Mm. a car that distance is cut to such short amount of time that it's almost regardless of traffic right let's say traffic didn't didn't matter then it's basically as if they lived in the city center they just lived really far away so there it allows them to relate to people that are further away in a personal way right and that's important for the city because the city was then able to have a whole bunch of workers and people like like shop goers people walking around the streets whatever basically basically a a bunch of people were able to live closer to a city and contribute to the city in some way and that's what sanitation did that's electrification did that's what the elevator did what the car did and trains did before cars i guess and now and what trains are doing now but that i think that's really why cities sort of have taken off is we've you know we've we haven't perfected them in any way, but as time has gone on, we've gotten better and better at integrating all of these parts into a city to make yeah. it to make it more livable and 
habitable True. and yeah. you know, functional for people to get around. It's interesting with the transportation thing because all of these other technologies and changes to the structures of cities, I think, mm-hmm. really foster the ability to have people live comfortably in close proximity to each other, mm-hmm. right? Like the elevator allowed more people to live in a smaller space mm-hmm. without stepping on each other's toes. Whereas the car and the train really did kind of the opposite, right? They allowed people to live farther away without having the downsides of living farther away. So it is, there is, I think, a fundamental difference because they did not increase density. Neither trains nor cars increased density of populated areas, Mm -hmm. but they did decrease the downsides of that lack of density. Right. The original trains, like the original use and function of trains was not to increase density. Nowadays, it is being used that way, which is an interesting concept that we should come back to. But yeah, originally, when cities became industrialized, all of the benefits of industrialization also came with the downsides, which were pollution and you know tenement housing yes, of course. and slums and all of that. So a bunch of rich people were like, we don't want to live in the city anymore. We now have this invention called a train, which we can hop on and go to our house in the countryside, quote unquote countryside, basically just right outside the city limits where people hadn't built right anything yet any real dense dwelling so at that point yeah. you could just build your big single family home and live rather comfortably away from the smoke and noise of the city and just commute in as needed um it was basically like well know, that is that is richer, the more, rich mean, rich people but um but that was that's the more middle middle class suburban thing i think before mm-hmm. that when you're talking about trains and stuff like that was that was the like you're not talking about single family homes you're I, talking about like no, I am. large country manors well with rich okay. folk way back in the day like like no, that's no, a different I'm, I'm talking i'm talking like the the original trolley car the original tram that's what it was used for that's that's how it like it wasn't to move necessarily move people within cities it was to move richer folk out of the middle of cities into the original 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 suburbs i'm talking pre-car post initial train okay so that's kind of where i'm at because that was the original use of it mm. And then people started to realize that, hey, maybe we should build trains in the city center to move people around. Right. I guess you're talking about local transit, not intercity transit, which was no, what trains were. No, no, no. Right, right, right. right. I, sorry, I'm making the distinction between like giant locomotive trains, the, the American equivalent today would be Amtrak, versus like the LIRR in, in New York right? Like the Long Island Railroad, the, the moving... <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. Like, like, like it, trams moves, it, moves, and... it moves people, like it's a regional train. Right. Which is not necessarily a giant um, smoke belching locomotive. Like this, I'm thinking like... Like yeah. streetcars, old-timey streetcars. Right, right, right. But that would move people far enough away from the city that they didn't sure. have to live with the downsides of living in a city at that point and could still live in their like countryside manner. And originally it was just for rich people who could just take the train at that point poor people didn't they just walked home from the factory to their tenement housing but well and it is a really interesting change that you're talking about because the reason why that stopped being a thing to a certain extent at least in some places is because cities stopped being such terrible places like that's what we're seeing now right from the 1980s onward people a lot of people want to move into the center of cities in ways that they have not previously because the downsides of living in the center of the city have gone away more and more, right? Initially, if you lived in the center of the city, you were going to get a disease. Then you were just going to have to deal with pollution. Then you were just going to have to deal with like poverty and slums and crime. And like gradually those things have been removed. Those negatives have been removed from city centers and people are observably reclustering in the middle. Like if you track where wealth lies in a city, mm. you're right. 
at certain periods it moved way out of the city to avoid all of the downsides of being in the city mm-hmm. while still being close enough to participate in the things that benefited them. And now it is definitely readjusting into the centers in a way that has not been seen in a long, long time, since long before the car and these trams that you're describing. To tie it back to sort of what creates a modern city, mm. I think it's a, I think what you were just saying is sort of an important point to consider because all the inventions that we have gone over pushed more and more people either into a city, like into the center of the cities, or allowed them to be at a far enough distance outside the city that they were still able to interact with the city, even if they didn't necessarily live in the middle. That was still a new thing, right? That was still something that hadn't happened up until that point. And like all these inventions pushed more and more people there. And then the car came around and then it was mass produced. And then... All of these issues happen with the city where downtowns and the first sort of suburban ring around cities just became inhospitable to live or not Mm. necessarily inhospitable, but people with money who could leave did want to and they did leave. And so that started to create the classic American suburb, I would say, because I think it happened in the U.S. most like first here. And in the biggest way. Right. And in the biggest way. That's a good point. Yeah. This happened between 1920 and 1960. 1960, 1970, mm. yeah, especially yeah, yeah. after World War II, when Americans were flush with cash and were able to like buy as much as they wanted, essentially. And also the government heavily subsidized houses for all of the veterans. Right, right. We we should definitely do an episode, especially for, for the US, just subsidization of the American suburb. But regardless, that that happened, that alone created these crazy huge suburbs. And I guess the, the point that I'm making is like, up until the invention and mass production of the car, yeah, everything kind of crammed more and more people into the center. And then a lot of them just spread out. Absolutely, and, yeah. and like you were saying, now it's starting to contract a bit, mm. but ne- not nearly as much as it had pre-car. Yes, that's true. And that's kind of the, the issues that cities are dealing with today. How do we fit more people into the centers? And what do we do with the suburbs? Because now that they've been around for a long time, what are the, the, the benefits and downsides of having them? And those are all important questions, but like, a modern city has transitioned into one of sort of different geographic levels, the center, like the outer ring of the center city, and then the suburbs. Right. And all of these inventions led up to the creation of that, of that sort of layout of the city. Yeah. No, okay. I understand what you mean. Yeah. And it is interesting too, because while we are seeing mild contractions in the United States and in most of the Western world in terms of increasing concentration, like when you look at some of other places like in Latin America and like in South Asia and East Asia, you see that they're currently building those suburbs. They're currently doing a lot of the things that places like the United States and Canada did in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, right? And it's remarkable because often those cities, especially in East Asia, are still much more dense than like Western cities, but you see that their density is decreasing quickly as adoption of the car occurs. As modern like mass production like more and more people are getting the car that's what you mean yeah they're adopting the car the the car is reaching greater market penetration yeah yeah yeah. you look at you know beijing in the 80s everyone was on bicycles when i lived in beijing last year it was all cars everywhere constant Mm -hmm. traffic everywhere Mm -hmm. right like like it's it is expanded spectacularly because now people own cars in a way that they never did before. And so this rising wealth in Asia and to a lesser extent in Latin America is causing them to walk down the same path. Because it's interesting when you look at what a lot of the world looks as like the leading way, like a lot of people have for a long time looked toward the United States and 
a lot of Western countries, but the United States in particular, as kind of this leading edge of technology and this leading edge of kind of advancement in a lot of things. And I think this has sadly led to some people copying less than ideal things that we're actually trying to move away from. Like you see this with a lot of different infrastructure where you look at dams and you look at certainly freeway construction and the building of suburbs and you look at what a lot of people would think of as last century's infrastructure that we don't necessarily want. Like you don't see huge hydroelectric dams being built in most of Western countries. But that has been over the last couple of decades copied in a lot of poorer parts of the world trying to catch up. I think that speaks to the importance of wealthy countries thinking about how to do things because the way things are done where technologies are first adopted disseminate around everywhere. So like what we were talking about, the elevator, what we were talking about, the car, right. like the way that was implemented first in the places that it was implemented first is how it was implemented everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. For better or worse. For better or for worse. And so as you approach these things, like, and we're looking at a lot of things nowadays, and, and I know we, we've shifted quite far from the initial uh, point of the conversation, but like nowadays we're looking at implementing things like green energy. We're t- looking at implementing things like the internet and how that is done. And for better or for worse, that is being not necessarily copied wholesale, but where those things are implemented first and the way they're implemented tends to disseminate. And those things need to be thought out very thoroughly. And the downsides of implementing them in the way that they're being implemented needs to be thought out very thoroughly before Mm -hmm. these things become unchangeable and locked down in stone. Also a small caveat for what it's worth. Mm. The place, like, I guess China is a great example. Like, China has built a bunch of crazy American-style suburbs yeah. for this massive urbanizing population. But to their credit, they have also built a ridiculous amount of trains and inner-city and True. intra-city metros. And I would argue that that's, like, them learning from European and American mistakes and building that infrastructure okay. in first. I would, I would. I would. I mean, I think it's a, okay. for, for all of their issues that they have... At this point, they are on track, if not already, to have the largest amount of rails by pure mileage in the world. Yeah, I think they have the most now, or they're close. Yeah, they they're might have. Right it's, behind the US. It's, yeah. it's just crazy how much they've done in such a short amount of time. And yeah. you know, I would argue that that's that's pretty good. You know, that's that's really good. So I guess in our conversation, you know, at this point in history, we're kind of at the makings of the modern city. Because we've kind of talked about where it started with sanitation and the ability for people to actually live in cities and not die of disease. And then sort of the other inventions that have facilitated further the living in cities and the sort of the packing people in. Even if they're in Mm -hmm. the suburbs, they're still being more connected to the center of the city. I guess that's what I should say, like a connection to the central point of of the city, wherever that is, probably the CBD, uh, the central business district. And so up to this point, that's that's what all the inventions have done. And I think now that we're we're kind of at 1970s, 1980s in terms yeah. of in terms of history. So what do, what do you think? Have, have there been any any inventions since or any any major changes since in cities that have created, you know, any any other large structural change that, that you can see? Yes. OK, so. I remember I was reading the obituary of the previous leader of Singapore. And he was quoted as talking about this meeting of a lot of world leaders, and they were all asked about the technology that they thought was most influential in the 20th century. And most of them said something about the internet or about something about the car or something like that. And he brought up air conditioning. 
And when you start to take the focus off of Europe and off of North America, you start to see the incredible importance of air conditioning. The point that he <laughs> made was that yeah. Singapore, this incredibly large economic hub, this country that has grown in terms of its wealth and capacity more than any other place in the world over the last 50 years, could not exist without air conditioning. You look at a lot of tropical climates, a lot of places that have seen rapid, rapid economic growth in the last 20, 30 years. And these places could not have grown and built themselves in the way that they have without air conditioning. People simply cannot work at a highly productive level if they're sweating and uh, like out of energy. Like it's just not, it's just, you're, you're not capable of doing that. It's, it's just not a thing. And so temperate climates have long had this advantage of not having to deal with incredibly humid, incredibly hot weather. Year round. Well, really, I mean, you could talk about the Northeast, but a lot of places in Europe and North America and North Asia, even in the summer, it's not that hot. It's not mm. as hot as it would be at right. any time in right. Singapore. Right, right, right. But you're right, certainly not year-round. And so I think air conditioning is really a key. And, I mean, it changes everything in the U.S. Mm. and Canada as well, mm. but or not Canada so much, but mm. but it, it really fundamentally changes the fact that now there are things that pretty much people can do anywhere. Like mm-hmm. you can do most work anywhere mm-hmm. if you can afford air conditioning, obviously, if your economic output is great enough. And I think that that is a huge transition because that has allowed for mass urbanization and huge economic growth throughout tropics in the way that it, it would not have been possible otherwise. Hmm. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I find it interesting that it was the um, the leader of Singapore that said that, considering how dense and small it is. Because I think that I think it goes doubly so for places that are more spread out. How do you mean? Just because, like, in order to like cool a building of a hundred people takes less energy than to cool a hundred homes of one person each. Ah, uh, sure, sure. So it's really interesting for him to say that. Mm. Definitely, huh? Air conditioning, interesting, interesting one. I, I, I honestly hadn't even considered that as like a, a facilitator for urbanization or for further urbanization and in specifically yeah. in the tropics. I mean, I guess on the flip side, indoor heating for like really, really cold places, but there aren't as many really, really cold places as there are tropical places. Well, and heating's not a very new... Wood fires have existed right. for quite a while. Right, right. I guess you can always just heat up your house. Well, and also when you're talking about how elevators allowed for skyscrapers. Right. Certainly, when you're talking about taller size skyscrapers, air conditioning also did, ventilation, those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. Like, if you're on the 30th floor, you can't necessarily open windows. That's not a thing, necessarily. Probably not a buildings. good... Yeah, probably not a good um, thing. It's, it's a bit dangerous, perhaps. De- definitely. And, and so, if you want to get any kind of air, you have to have air conditioning, especially if you want to have cool air. Right. It, I think air conditioning also further expanded upward the range that we could reach right in a reasonable fashion hmm, so cool that's interesting yeah. yeah i don't know actually i honestly don't know enough about the history of the air conditioner to know when it was created or to when it was first implemented into buildings i would imagine around the 60s yeah i think um, the 60s was when it was 60s, I mean, 70s commercially right uh, produced yeah right right although they had a lot they had you know the empire state building was built in like the 30s or something 30s 40s yeah, I'm so, not saying they didn't exist before that, but yeah. New York is not the same as Mumbai. You know what I mean? Like right. they're, they're uh, granted, New York gets hot in the summer, but you might have a few weeks of terrible, terrible weather, right. as opposed to having twelve months of it. So, 
But you're right. you're definitely right. There were some tall skyscrapers mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. advent of it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to think about that one. Didn't even consider okay. it. But cool. No, I like it. I like it. I think in my mind the transition uh, or the not really the technology, but the um, the infrastructure that really changed cities in the 70s and 80s and I guess early mm-hmm. 90s and that is continuing till today is really something that had been around for a while and that was honestly public transit okay and the expansion of it i mean public transit has gone through especially in the u.s i mean it, it the funding varies by country but and by municipality yeah right that too yeah. but we've really seen despite any sort of cutbacks in funding whatever there has been a huge expansion and boom in public transit between like 1980 and now i would say overall growth yeah, around absolutely. the world and i think that the recognition of what benefits trains and buses and ferries and you know gondolas in some places bring is huge and underestimated by a lot of people and can we just pause on gondolas for a second sure because i just a month or two ago read for the first time about actual transportation systems using gondolas in cities like not just using them in the swiss alps and things great welcome to south america yeah, no, I was reading about Brazil and right. it was it was fascinating to me. And as I thought about it more, I was thinking that, you know, for a highly urban city like New York, right, that has really tall buildings, like that makes perfect sense. Right. Like, people don't necessarily need to be on the ground level. Nope. Like, that that it, it blew my mind when I read about using gondolas. Yep. To move through the sky. Like it's it's great. It's it is it's, incredible. It yeah. moves it moves almost as many people as certain small subway systems like trams. Yeah. It moves a lot. I guess what I'm trying to say is it moves lots and lots of people. Yeah. Um, and in really hilly areas like in Bogota, I think, and La Paz, I think both of those have gondolas. But anyway, lots of pla- yeah, basically lots so. of like mountainous cities in in South America have these gondolas and they're incredible. And I would just yeah. I would love to commute and have this like amazing view, you know what I mean? And the it's gondolas true. are perfectly safe. If you don't, if you have fewer heights, it kind of sucks. But maybe you just don't look down at all, or don't look out, or you don't take it, that. Or, but other people can take it. Yeah, know, like, but but you probably want to. I mean, it really, you know, you you are literally flying over traffic. You are like, like no, it it's is, really cool. It is, yeah. it is incredible. Um, and if you haven't checked it out, definitely just go like Google like South American gondola systems. It's really and you really see even awesome some places like in Portugal that it's in a few places. It's in Porto and like Switzerland obviously has them all over the place because that's you know yeah Switzerland just a mountain. But but they're not you know but they're not necessarily used as the I, I would put I would put Swiss trains before like gondolas as the primary mode of public transit. Whereas like sure they are they are a very niche form right. of transit there. But to your point, they really shouldn't be. I mean, like San Francisco yeah. could totally benefit from gondola systems or, oh, yeah. or any any other city with any other hills, even cities that don't have hills. It could be amazing to have gondola systems just to go from like one side of the city to the other. I think what's really interesting about them is a lot of people wouldn't want to look at them because you know, they're so prominent on the skyline. I would be totally fine with it. I think it'd be really cool. It kind of reminds me of like a boardwalk or a or a, an, an amusement park, which is sweet. Why not make our cities like amusement parks? True. I also think that in some places with actually tall buildings, yeah, it wouldn't necessarily have to be much taller than like it wouldn't be taller than the tallest buildings. Like it's going to be much shorter than that. No, it wouldn't even wouldn't even be. That so it's close, not going to yeah. be way up there on the like top of the skyline. Right. It could be nestled into the middle of the right. city, but in right. some of those giant you know urban valleys that we have <laughs> in some places. Right. But yeah, no, I, I find it fascinating. Now, I will say, like, I mean, and they're also relatively inexpensive in compared to digging metros and things like that. Obviously, they take upkeep and stuff. I think they would be best used as a cheaper 
alternative to building a metro line to somewhere specific. Basically, it would be like a connector to the main regional train or main um, intercity train. It's like an Um, express transit. Right, right. Like the one example... You need to go to the airport or whatever. Well, yeah, yeah, gondola gondola to the airport. Interesting. Luggage would take up a lot of space. Yeah, it might be an issue with planes too. (laughs) Maybe. They're not going to be that tall and it'll be somewhere else. Well, planes taking off. Don't anyway. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You figure Uh, it out. I I think the the good example is I think New York City has I think it's called like the Roosevelt Tram or something. Roosevelt something. There's I honestly wish I knew the name, but there is a gondola system in New York City that apparently people don't like they use, but it's definitely not one of the biggest forms of transport in the city. But it's still there and it serves this like niche purpose. And I feel like gondolas would be a great system, a great place for that. But anyway. We're kind of getting a little yeah. off, off topic. Of Sorry, it. yeah. Bring it no, back. No, public no, transit changed stuff in the 80s, yeah. Public transit has changed stuff between the 80s and today. I think that that has changed cities. And um, How has it changed cities, though? Right, right. What has the change been? Well, now that we're more so than ever around the world, we're coming to, I don't want to say the limits of cities, but we're having to have real hard discussions about movement within cities. Mm. Now that Practically everyone has a car, and it has become standard across the world. We're realizing that more cars equals more congestion, and that isn't going to go away if cars are our primary mode of transportation. And also, more cars equals a greater usage of space around cities, and it comes down to like how much space do we want to accommodate for cars as opposed to accommodating for people. And yeah. the most efficient use of space versus people transported is trains. Because you can pack a lot of people onto a train. It doesn't have to be a ridiculous, like... Japanese-style people shoving you Yeah, Yeah, people, people literally shoving you. In. It, it does not have to be like that. To me, that is yeah. a sign of a system that, while incredible and huge, is at capacity and needs to be expanded in some way. And so, sure. and I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, you can still put a, a, good, a really good amount of people on trains comfortably and move them through cities in a more efficient and with a smaller footprint than you could ever do mm. with cars. And so those are the conversations that we're having now, which is really interesting because we've gone from this, you know, cities being small and compact to cities being large and spread out to now us realizing the externalities of that transition. And now we're trying to figure out ways to cram more people into smaller areas because it is ultimately beneficial for cities for a lot of reasons and for yeah. humanity. Well, and also because, as I mentioned before, prior to the 1980s or in the 1980s, most people in a lot of parts of the world saw a lot of parts of the middle of their cities as incredibly right. crime-ridden. Right. There was tons of crime. Right. And that has dropped off in an, a shocking way over the last 25, 30 years. Right. So now people actually want to live there more than they would want to live anywhere else. Because right. that was right. one of the last terrible things. I mean, now I suppose we still have somewhat less privacy if you're living right in the heart of a city. There are still some downsides in terms of noise <laughs> and privacy and all of that. Right, but those are solvable issues. Right, and and I think this is kind of one of the points that there were so many issues, and the last 200-year history of cities has been a history of eliminating these huge issues and getting down to less and less important issues that are equally solvable, just like we solved having poop in the streets (laughs) we solved having pollution in the air and we solved having no warm water and no electricity like i guess that wasn't really solving the problem but we we provided that i like i like warm water true i i like it as well um (laughs) but like 
we now have the potential, just as we've now pretty well solved crime, we have the potential to solve issues like... I mean, yeah, go what? ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. We, have the, we have the potential to solve issues like noise and privacy. Right. We're not saying that we've completely solved crime, right. but <laughs> rates of crime have dropped so precipitously, it is not a non-issue, but a very small issue compared to what it had been historically. I guess that's true, but I also want to add that a huge reason why there was an uptick in crime in the center of cities, a large portion of that increase was due to disinvestment, both at the federal and state level in the United States, at least, that's what I know best of the center of cities. I mean, they kind of just, I mean, within the 70s and 80s, people just left the center. Governments just made them terrible places. They tore down, like, parks to put in freeways. And they did that in the, starting in the 60s, leading up to the 70s and 80s. And we saw those effects create cities where it was just not a good place to live and there was lots of disinvestment in the centers of cities. That's why in American cities, you saw lots of crime in the 80s. That's why, like, all of the... 80s movies, you know, whenever they were going to go to some crime-ridden place, it was always downtown. It was always sprawled with graffiti and, like, the homeless people warming themselves with, with like, trash cans that were on fire. Right. Like, that was the 80s, and that was, I would argue, in most part due to disinvestment in those communities. I don't really agree with that. Okay. Okay. That's another discussion. Because when you look at crime rates, when you look at crime rates yeah. overall, not yeah. just in the center of cities, but crime yeah. rates overall, yeah. they were much higher. And they were much higher in the 60s and in the 70s and in the 80s than they are now and than they have been in the last 20 years. And this is not just the U.S. This is Canada. This is England. This is France. This is all over the world. Like this has been a worldwide movement toward lower crime rates since the 1980s. And there's a whole lot of disagreement and argument around why this has occurred and why there was higher crime at that point. But I find it hard to believe that putting up freeways in the middle of cities and not investing enough in parks was what caused crime throughout the entirety of our society. I guess I'm not going to say, well, it was that plus not investing in, (laughs) I mean, not investing in the schools in those areas, not investing in the community centers or, you know, just the, the remnants of covenant laws and redlining, you know, really came to fruition uh, in the eighties plus disinvestment in public transit in those areas. Just, just yeah, like, overall, there was a lot like, of like, bad and then, policy. And then, and then like the war, the war on drugs and the over policing and just all of that. I mean, I, like I didn't name those things because they, you know, they don't necessarily have to do so much with cities, but there was a huge disinvestment in general in those portions of cities around the U S and, you know, because of just bad policy c- coupled with disinvestment, it led to upticks in crime and just poor living conditions for, for people who lived there. And who continue to live in those areas. I mean, people like areas uh, like the south side of Chicago still see that massive amount of disinvestment. And now they have to deal with gentrification where investment is not going back into the areas. And that is a whole another discussion. But that's really, you know, if, I if think you the causality like, between crime and what you're describing, like bad policy, I grant you. The the causality there between that and causing crime. Like, like I said, our crime rates have been for the last stretch of time lower than they were in the 60s lower than they were in the 70s like perhaps we made bad decisions throughout that entire time but like it it was not concentrated or it was concentrated but it was not only affecting these centers of cities where there was less investment the entire society had more crime in smaller cities all over the place that that, this is beside the point the the point is that crime has dropped precipitously sure in a very beneficial way and that that has allowed people to move back into the middle of a city are you saying that that's because we've invested much more in the last 
couple decades in the center of cities, and so they've that's why crime has dropped. Um, like, is that the premise that you're working under? Partially. I mean, okay. I, I I don't think we've invested that much into. It's hard, from what I understand. It's complicated. I'm, and I am no I am no crime expert, but from what I understand, there's you know with the drop in crime, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of things that have uh, been attributed to it. Um, mm. Some people say broken windows. Some people say broken windows is not at all and has actually made things worse. Others say that it has, like, there has been some investment in areas of cities that had seen disinvestment before. But also, like I said, that that has led to issues of gentrification. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I, I honestly don't know where to assign not blame as much as causal links. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like causes for drops in crime. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Like like economics. It's, it's a bit complicated right. to lay right. on it's, one it's, issue it's, or one. Right, so right. I, I'm more comfortable making the argument that disinvestment leads to crime rather than saying investment leads to less crime. I, I don't okay. I, I, I don't know. I honestly I don't know because like, and this is a like slightly off topic, but you know you you can take schools for example. Just you know shoving a bunch of money at a school that mm. had previously not been invested in is not going to solve all the issues of that school. And I think the same works for cities. Like definitely a good place to start. You know, I would never say don't give the school money or don't give the, the, the city money or that portion of the city money. But there's a lot of things that come with it. And I, I don't feel comfortable making arguments of what produces reductions in crime. I do feel yeah. comfortable making the argument and saying that not investing generally increases the probability of higher crime in an area because it just creates less opportunity. It's just a bad situation to be in, bad situation to, to live in. Um, and when people don't have jobs sure. and people don't have access to, to wealth in other parts of the city, then you know they turn to a life of crime because it's the only thing they know and the only way that they can make money. I mean, that's, again, like maybe one small slice of a larger pie about why crime happens. And I, again, don't really but know. But that is a significant contributing factor. You're right, obviously. Sure. So that's, that's all I'm saying is like, okay. to me, disinvestment was huge. And which sort of bring this back is a reason mm -hmm. why investment in public transit sort of across the board between the 1980s and now has been and will continue to be such a huge driver of economic growth within cities and opportunity, both for the rich and the poor, as well as, you know, a possible function of reducing crime. You know, you, if you connect yeah. people who previously had to take, you know, if you, if you connect people who, who aren't able to get to a job to a job and they're able to then have that job that's a good right. thing and when yes, places weren't, and when places were not invested in they didn't have that opportunity but now city planners and cities are recognizing that hey not only do people want to live in the centers of cities and around centers of cities but it's a good thing for people to do so for equality reasons and economic reasons and environmental reasons and all these other reasons public like health reasons like because yeah, of all that, absolutely. you know, then investing in public transit is the number one way to go because it's the most efficient way to move people yeah. and the smallest footprint in terms of space True. being used. And it reduces and it certainly, pollution and just all that other 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 things it, that comes with it. Yeah, it certainly greatly increases the flexibility of decision making for all of the inhabitants to use it. So right. like they can choose to take this job because right. it's a better job rather right. than be forced to take the job that's next to them. Or same right. with like I mean, they can go to that church because they like that church instead of having to do the one down exactly. the street. Exactly. So yeah, absolutely. And anytime you increase the flexibility of the lives of the people in your city and expand the range of options they have, right. that is going to make everything better. Right, exactly. And that's not to say that cars don't serve a function. They do. It's just that to me, like when we want to talk about what makes a modern 
present day city. My argument is it's, it's ones that offer the residents the most flexibility and capability for their residents to get around easily. Okay. And I, I would I would also argue cheaply because that sure. also is a barrier. But cities like Japan or Paris or Japan, Japan is not a city. That's Tokyo, a country. <laughs> Tokyo. <laughs> God, yeah. uh, cities like Tokyo, Paris. You know, cities like Africa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, places where it's just super easy to get around. And, True. And, and when I when I say Paris, I'm talking about like inside sort of the ring road around Paris, because when you move outside of that, you actually see lots of disinvestment in public transit, like in the in the suburbs. Right. You're talking about within the actual city, within as opposed to yeah, within the suburbs. yeah, within within the. The, the bounds of the city. The bounds of, yeah, the legal bounds of the city, the legal boundaries of right. the city, which is that ring road. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue that cities are going, are encountering today. And that's what makes okay. them the most, quote unquote, modern. So looking forward, like, I mean, obviously, public transit you see as a huge issue. What other major issues are cities facing or what will they have to change or challenge themselves to mm-hmm, overcome mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the coming decades? Like, well, do you think yeah. we're at another transition point in the way that we were yeah, yeah. when we got the car and the way that we were when we electrified? I, I think um, yes, or if not, we're coming up to it because okay. automated cars are going to make a huge difference. Uh, that's undoubtedly like yeah. the ways that we travel throughout our cities. I really hope the creation and mass standardization of the automated car does not result in the same amount of dominance that non-automated car has enjoyed for the past 60 70 years but well it's not going to reduce the dominance you're right you're right you're right it would i don't think it would necessarily reduce the dominance but i do think that this like swing towards investment in public transit should continue and should work complementary to these cars okay because the first time cars came around, cars killed public transit. Right, right. They were, they everyone were, said, well, right. we have cars. Why do we need to invest all of this money in this stuff that doesn't change and update? And exactly. Like you get a new car every five years or exactly. three years or whatever. Exactly. Else, yeah. But now we're viewing automated cars through the lens of, oh, wait, cars actually cause a lot more issues than they solve at certain levels of density. Yeah. So if we're not at that moment, we're coming up to it. But, but additionally, I also wanted to mention that transportation and housing are sort of two sides of the same coin. And... The major issue moving forward is is both transportation and how we structure our housing around that. And there's so many issues under housing, so many like sub-issues. But yes. I guess the one thing I want to highlight is just how do we integrate good housing for all into our public transit schemes? Mm. And really what I think we're going to start seeing, hopefully what I, what I hope we start seeing, is a world in which even if there is a sort of a central business district in a city yeah i don't know take like lower manhattan for example okay or midtown whatever i know there's two but lower manhattan's fine yeah sure lower manhattan like just take that as an example then like people can travel into the center of it and it's super walkable and it's really accessible for transit what i'm hoping is that that level of accessibility and walkability is then duplicated literally not necessarily copied and pasted but like duplicated in the surrounding areas not even as far out as like god i don't know new york well enough but Queens, Brooklyn, like what yeah. Are you about? Well, well, like in Brooklyn, yeah, yeah. I, I know that Brooklyn's also super walkable, but I'm just hoping that, that every it, yeah. that every city, sure, sure, that the the parts that aren't walkable become more walkable, and you you make areas more walkable through better access to public transit and and denser. So yeah, so you you switch up you switch up housing from like single family homes to more two three story apartment buildings, even higher than sure. that, depending on where you are. Like right now, there's this bill going through the California legislature to force areas around public transit to upzone. Really? Yes. It's basically a wow. a middle finger to NIMBYs who live around public transit. 
And it's a bit of a middle finger to property rights as well. A little bit, yeah. But it's also highlighting the importance of having good housing around transit and what that means for a region that has a ridiculous housing crisis sure. like California and especially the Bay Area. Yeah. And so that's a super interesting proposal that I think both focuses on housing and it focuses on transportation. And that to me, the, the meshing of the two and making sure that they work together without excluding anyone from the equation is really sort of the... That's the key. That's the challenge. Going forward. Yeah, that's okay. the challenge going forward is like making... Because we know that walkable areas and we know that places connected to public transit and we know that places with good housing stock create mm-hmm. the best conditions for people to live in beyond yeah. beyond suburbs beyond the center of cities those are the areas that everyone wants to live in those cute places <laughs> those cute little neighborhoods yeah. that where it's real, a neighborhood that, that, that but real estate, it has everything exactly what the thing that i always find incredible is that there are huge fights, huge, huge fights to even add a bus stop, you know, to add a bus stop to a, to a neighborhood. Sure, yeah. The, let alone like a tram or anything. Huge fights from neighborhood associations to add that. Yeah. And a lot of times those projects are stopped or delayed for like 10 years and it's essentially killed. But yeah. when you look at real estate listings for places in neighborhoods that are near public transit, they always say a five-minute walk to the tram, right. a two-minute walk to the bus, right? right that's what it, everybody wants, it, yeah. It is an amenity. It is an amenity that people want, that people love, because it's beneficial. And I guess what yeah. I'm trying to say is, like, those types of, of neighborhoods cannot be exclusive, because if they are, it concentrates wealth, and it's bad. Well, and this ties into what I think of as the major challenge going forward for right. cities. I've talked for a while. Let's hear your, uh, your opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of maybe just a different perspective on what you're talking about. But I think over the last half century, we've gotten to the point where in most major cities, most property is owned by individual smallholders of property, right? Mm -hmm. So most property is owned by people that own houses, Uh really, Uh or, you know, small businesses to a lesser extent and large companies to an even lesser, or maybe not even lesser extent, but it's all owned and it's all built on. Uh-huh. And the way we've gotten around this problem and allowed for the growth of cities around the world in the last half century has been to expand them, to just build out, build new houses. And so you don't disturb the people that are already there and you allow more people to move there in decent housing situations. Uh-huh. And that's been a part of the growth of the suburbs. But since we've had this transition in the last decade, decade and a half, uh-huh toward wanting to reconcentrate and toward wanting to make places more walkable as you're describing and toward uh-huh. wanting to have better transportation and uh-huh. being able to live in more in the center of cities we've gotten to this point where pretty much there is a consensus that we don't want to expand cities further we don't want to take up more and more space i hope there is yeah i think there's a pretty good consensus that at least in the larger cities there is a certain distance that you just don't want to be outside of the city and still try to be a part of the city right you really have to function separately at a certain distance and so I think that creates a problem because we are now in this situation where we have to increase concentration. That is how cities have to grow. And cities will grow going forward. They really, in many senses, have to grow in the next 20 or 30 years. Uh But we don't have an easy way to have them grow. And what you were talking about in the California legislature and that proposal is one way to get around the fact that people don't want to sell their houses, don't want to sell their property. Right. Like whether or not neighborhoods want to allow building, people don't want to sell the places that they live in. And if they don't have to sell because they don't need it financially, then you either have to accept that cities will not grow 
or you have to compel people by violating their property rights. And on the other side of that is... <laughs> or eminent domain. Right, which is violating the property rights. But right, 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 right. right <laughs> we decided right. We, you don't have property let, rights. Let, let, let's not debate that, but, but okay, right, okay. right, right, right. <laughs> and on the other side of that is you also have cities like San Francisco that have extremely restrictive zoning laws, zoning rules. Mm, yeah. And when you have extremely restrictive zoning rules, you also restrict growth and construction and concentration. Mm -hmm. And so you have these two things of people not wanting to sell their property, don't not wanting development in their neighborhoods, and then cities also putting heavy brakes on those sorts of growth. And yeah. when that is the kind of growth that will be necessary, trying to facilitate that suddenly becomes very, very difficult. And I think what we face in cities over the next 20 years is the potential to have essentially things grind to a halt in terms of progress and growth. And you see this in London, you see this here in Dublin, where rent prices, the place that I live in, it's 1300 euros for rent. It's a one bedroom apartment. I was talking to some people who I know here, and they had a two bedroom house that was 1300, three years ago or four years ago. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of growth in terms of prices that you're seeing because there is not construction. There's very little construction because there's highly restrictive zoning and there's lack of selling. Like people want to live in houses and people don't want to sell their houses. And so you see this in London where they have a huge housing shortage. You see this in San Francisco. You see this in, in a lot of major cities because they've decided not to grow out. Like London has the green belt. They can't grow out. And so if you can't grow out and people won't sell to let you grow up, you reach this possible grinding halt. And that is something that I think people will have to overcome. And it's not so much a technological problem as it is a policy and community problem. And I think that that is the largest challenge facing cities in the next 20 or 30 years. Mm. And I don't have a particularly good solution for that because it's kind of a muddle through kind of situation where yeah. you have to get everyone on board. Yeah. One possible solution that I see perhaps mitigating some of that problem is the kind of sorting effects that I was talking about in the first episode where people can move to places that have what they want. And if you have people that want to have suburbs move to places that have a lot of suburbs, then they can have a lot of suburbs. And if you have places that are highly concentrated and you have people that want highly concentrated places moving there, those places then can build up and become more concentrated. And so you have a sorting mechanism where potentially if people move to places that are trying to implement things that they want, they will be more on board and you will have a more cohesive consensus around the direction that cities should build in and move in. And that might lessen this possible problem. But I, I do think that that is the biggest challenge going forward. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we should maybe, you know, we'll tackle that on a later episode. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I, I hope so. Well, we could, we could talk about all that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Thanks so much for listening. It's been great, and we'll we'll talk to you uh, in two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can find our show notes and anything that we talked about today at subjectradio.com slash polis slash 003. And yeah, I'll talk to you in two weeks, Ben. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Have a good one. Bye. I, before we start, mm -hmm. I'm going to get my tea because it's now hot in, in the kitchen. Get it. And then I will come back. Get it. And then we will start. Is it Irish breakfast? Yes, it is. Great. Berries, man. I don't know what berries is. That's the brand. It's like the Irish uh, tea. Oh, I just know Twinnings, which is British, but whatever. Tea and a hot water bottle to boot, man. A hot what? A hot water bottle. Oh.
hot water bottle. Yeah, a bottle of warmth. Like a thermos? No, it's a heater, but you pour hot water into it, and it, like, keeps you warm for hours. Oh. Yeah, I'd never heard of them before I got to this country either. (laughs) 